1: This is Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpothanschel, broadcasting remotely. A West Hartford, Connecticut native is leading efforts to expand broadband access to Americans and make it more affordable. Attorney Jessica Rosenworcel has been a member of the Federal Communications Commission, the FCC, for two terms starting in 2012. Now she's the acting chairwoman of the FCC. And today, Where We Live, Jessica Rosenworcel joins us. She oversees a federal independent agency that regulates communication technologies like cell phone and cable services. The pandemic has shown all of us the importance of having reliable phone and internet access. You can join our conversation, find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Jessica Rosenworcel, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I mentioned again, you're acting chairwoman of the FCC and you're also a Hall High School grad. How often do you get back to our state? Uh, Well, my parents still
0: live in the house where I grew up, and so uh, when I come home, very little has changed, but that's really the sweetest part. Uh, I am a Connecticut person and a New Englander at heart, so uh, I miss being there in that part of the country. I'm in Washington right now. We're having a small snowstorm, but it's nothing like the uh, fluffy white snow I knew growing up at home um, (laughs) back in the 80s and 90s.
1: So as a member of the FCC, when I think about the issues that you and your colleagues work on, uh, have worked on over the years, this might not be something the general public follows closely, but I think the pandemic has changed that when we see how important and necessary it is to have high speed internet for people who are working at home, especially children who have been in remote school now, what have you been hearing from parents and teachers, even um, healthcare professionals when we think about the importance of telemedicine during the pandemic?
0: Yeah. um... You know, there probably was a time not that long ago when I would have to begin conversations explaining what the Federal Communications Commission does and how the agency's been around since 1934 and oversees satellite services, cable services, your cell phone, wireless access, and a whole bunch of engineering and technical matters. But during this pandemic, the value proposition of having access to high speed internet service. I mean, it's just never been clearer, right? As a nation, we've been asked to take so much of what we do in person and go online for work, for school, for healthcare, and more. And I think that this pandemic has conclusively demonstrated that for every household, broadband's not just nice to have, it's need to have. And I think that that simple fact is going to have to direct to the FCC's actions in the days ahead.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, just the other month, we spoke with John Horrigan from the Technology Policy Institute. He looked at a, he looked at the digital divide here in our state during the pandemic, and it really focused on two group two groups. So when we think about people in communities that have, don't have access uh, to broadband or reliable service like rural areas, Northwest Connecticut um, and other parts of the quiet corner, but also communities where maybe service is available but people can't afford a good plan that gives them the speed they need. So we're thinking about low-income communities of color in our Connecticut cities. So can you talk about the issues that we have in our state here in Connecticut, how that plays out in other states?
0: You know, I actually think the way that he described the digital divide is just right. I think for too long when we talked about the digital divide, we were only talking about rural communities, remote areas like you said, the Quiet Corner or northwestern Connecticut, where the infrastructure may not reach every single house and every single business. And we need to spend funds and develop plans to make sure that it does, just like we've done with electricity over the history of this nation and in the state. But there's this other component to the digital divide that's really important, which is we have to think about adoption and affordability. And there's some data out there that suggests that three to four times as many households in urban and suburban areas don't have reliable and consistent access to broadband. So if we're going to solve the digital divide, get everyone everywhere connected, and I think we should, we have to address both deployment and adoption. And I think that's the way we have to think about this issue going forward.
1: I understand that you've coined the term homework, homework gap. And now, again, we're in this pandemic where we see uh, how the digital divide impacts children and learning. We know that children have a right to receive a free public education. Do you see this also meaning that kids have a right to Internet, good, consistent, reliable Internet access too? acting? Yeah, I'm so
0: glad that you asked about what I call the homework gap. Um, and the way I describe it is this, you know, when I was growing up in West Hartford, if I needed to do my nightly schoolwork, I needed paper, a pencil, and my brother leaving me alone. And, you know, that third one was the hardest part. And now every child needs Internet access. Look, seven in ten teachers before this pandemic assigned homework that requires Internet access. But all the FCC data show that w- there's one in three households that don't have broadband service. And where those numbers overlap is what I started calling the homework gap. And it was a crisis before the pandemic. But then, gosh, roughly a year ago, we sent 50 million kids home and we told them to go online and engage in remote learning. But you know what? Millions of kids have been locked out of the virtual classroom because they don't have that reliable internet access at home. So I have been pressing for the FCC to make solving the homework gap a priority. It feels to me that it's a very distinct part of our nation's digital divide, but it's one that we should be able to solve. There's data that suggests there's between 12 to 17 million students in this country who don't have access to the internet they need for their education. And I just feel like that's a big number, but it's not so big, we can't solve it. And we should use programs that have existed for decades, like a program called E-Rate, that helps connect our schools and libraries in every state across the country, how can we update it and modernize it so it also helps provide options for those kids to get connected at home for their homework and their schoolwork?
1: You're hearing Jessica Rosenworcel here on where we live. She's on Zoom with us. I don't know, Jessica, if your uh, earbuds are rubbing up against uh, your shirt, but it's causing a little bit of interference. I'm just thinking this is the, the way that, you know, all of us are, are connecting where sometimes uh, the, the, how we hear each other can be difficult with our technology at hand. Just wanted to give you a heads up about that. Uh, but I again, she's no problem. I'll try to fix that. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, she's with us as we talk about uh, the role of the FCC uh, to help uh, Americans access uh, Internet, but not only uh, to access it, to be able to afford it. Uh, you mentioned some programs that have existed. Uh, E-Rate is one of them that helps uh, schools and libraries to get Internet connectivity and technology affordably. This is something uh, that uh, your former colleague and former chairman, uh, Pai, didn't, you, and I, you and he did not agree on uh, the role of these programs. And so moving forward as acting chairwoman, how do you see uh, working with your Republican colleagues around this program, again, to make it more robust?
0: Well, I've got an agency that is right now, um, has two Democrats and two Republicans. Uh, Typically we would have five members. We've only got four. So bipartisanship is the only way forward. I am keenly aware of that. But I also think we are sitting here in this extraordinary time, right? We've got this pandemic. We're trying to get out of an economic crisis associated with it. And we know that giving people access to modern communications is a way to help them continue their schooling, keep up with their medical appointments as telemedicine grows. And for many people, it's essential to really continue to go to work and to maintain their jobs. So I just feel like we have to bring those ideas to center and find a way to work on them. There's another program that Congress just gave us authority to enact called the Emergency Broadband Benefit. So we're working on that right now, and that would provide discounts of up to $50 a month for households that are struggling during this crisis. And um, those are ways to help low-income individuals get connected faster, and it's my hope that we'll have that up and running very soon.
1: So Congress passed this as part of the coronavirus relief bill, $3.5 billion for this emergency broadband program that you just mentioned, uh, $50 a month for low-income families. How long could that last, uh, Chairwoman?
0: Yeah, this is a good question. It's $3.2 billion, and if I could engage in just a bit of Washington speak, it's appropriated (laughs) money, which means Congress set up those funds, and there'll be a point in the future where they could run out. So we may need to return to Congress if demand is really high. And um, I think what's most important for the Federal Communications Commission right now is that we do a good job running this program. Let's demonstrate that it can help get households connected who need Internet access to continue with work and school and healthcare, all of it. And um, I want to make sure that we do a good job with this program because I think then Congress will be able to assess um, how it can support it in the future.
1: You just had a meeting the other day uh, where there's a task force that you've created to look at broadband access. But part of the problem is the data that the FCC of the federal government has related to what broadband access actually looks like across our country, the maps and who has it and who doesn't. Could you talk about this monumental challenge before you as you think about uh, ways to improve Internet access for all Americans?
0: Yeah, it is both. Really simple and a really big challenge at the same time. But it's hard to believe, but this, uh, the United States, we don't have the best maps that suggest precisely where broadband service is and is not. And during the last several years, the administration spoke a lot about fixing this. But I decided right out of the gate, as I took over the reins, we were going to actually set up the architecture to do it. So I set up a broadband data task force, and we are going to be using funds that have been appropriated to the agency to help us build nationwide maps of where service is and is not. And we're not just going to rely on the carriers telling us that. We're actually going to rely on consumers, local governments, state governments, tribal authorities. In other words, we're going to take the data we have and ask people across this country country to help us perfect it and get it right. Because I think all of us know, you know, which house is too far down the road for getting service and which places when we travel, we start to lose bars on our phone. So how do we take that knowledge that we all have from our day-to-day life and make sure that that knowledge can help us in Washington build better data, build better maps. And once we have that kind of granular, precise information, we will all do a lot better job at sending support to areas that don't have service and getting them connected.
1: What kind of timeline are you working under? I understand the FCC auctioned off bids under the former administration for companies to address this rural service provision. And if mapping and better data is needed, you know, how quickly can that get done so that this money is used and the right companies are are doing the work acting chairwoman? That's such a good question.
0: You see, in an ideal world, we would have done all of this several years ago less talking and more action. But the way we are right now is we're gonna have to do two things at once. We're gonna have to assess the commitments made by the last administration to some rural areas that are looking for service, make sure that we're good to go and we can support the carriers that have proposed serving those areas with subsidies from the government. And we're simultaneously gonna have to do a better job with our data and maps. I would love it if we could roll back and sequence this from several years ago, we can't. So we're gonna to have to do multiple things at once because I think the long-term effort of getting people connected is going to take us um, not just doing one activity, but again, doing both at the same time. Mm.
1: When I mentioned some of the companies that got uh, these, um, that were awarded these bids, I should say, uh, one of them is SpaceX. And so I'm wondering if you could talk about the technology <laughs> available to get this Internet access to, say, rural parts of our country, where, again, we know that Internet service providers in the past, if it's not uh, something that they can make money off of, they're not going to put in all the infrastructure to get that Internet to somebody.
0: Um, So I don't want to talk about any particular company, but I think you bring up a really good point. There's different technologies that are being developed that might be able to help us get to more places faster. You know, traditionally, we used to think about our telephone companies and they would offer digital subscriber line service. And that was how people got high-speed internet. Increasingly, most households get it through their cable provider. And we are starting to see the development of new fixed wireless services that could also change how people access the internet from home. And these low-Earth orbiting satellite systems could get connectivity to some of the hardest to reach places a lot faster than terrestrial on the ground systems. So I'm an optimist about all these different types of technology that are being developed because I think in this country, we're gonna to have to use them all to reach everyone everywhere. Mm-hmm.
1: Again, we're talking with Acting Chairwoman Jessica Rosenworcel as she leads the FCC as we talk about the digital divide, the homework gap, and so much more. This is a topic that we talk about often here on Where We Live. I wanted to share some listener tweets uh, that they were sent to me. Uh, Randy tweeted, starting January 1st, Xfinity turned back on the data cap. And that means they were getting warning emails. They were gonna start getting charged per gigabyte and terabyte. My wife and I work from home. My son is 100% remote learning. Our TVs are all Wi-Fi. They had to ration the data the last two days of January, which can be problematic when you have to work and and get your schoolwork done. Someone else tweeted, uh, Diana, that broadband internet's something that has clearly become a basic need. We're all paying too much. And if you have Comcast, chances are it's unreliable. We upgraded to the speed recommended for, the, for an office building and saw no noticeable change except in our bill. So just with some of those tweets sent to us, acting chairwoman Rosenworcel, what can the FCC do to help consumers?
0: Well, first of all, I agree it's an essential service. Everyone needs it right now to have a fair shot in 21st century life. And uh, with respect to data caps, um, I understand this not just professionally, but personally, you know, I'm in a household with kids who are doing online schooling, a spouse who's also working, and we too worry about what those data caps can mean. Now, as far as FCC authority, one of the challenges is during the last administration when um, they rolled back a lot of the agency's authority in this place. So we're gonna have to look about what rules we have and how we might be able to reassert it. But I know that my inbox is filled with complaints about data caps. I mean, this pandemic has put a focus on it and it's easy to see why. It's not just my household and the household of your listeners. We're all trying to do more things online and using up more capacity in the process. And while the FCC has always had policies about reasonable network management and allowing providers to make some decisions, I think we've got to acknowledge that these data caps can really harm households and individuals because they can't do everything they need to do during this pandemic to maintain some semblance of modern life. Um, This is an area of concern. I've asked the FCC's Enforcement Bureau to look into some reports that certain ISPs, if they're complying with their policies and how they disclose information to the public about what their plans are. And I've also reached out to the Attorney General of Pennsylvania, who's done some work on this subject. So I am studying what policies we have in place at the FCC in light of changes made during the past administration and trying to figure out a way to address this. Uh, Because, again, I understand it not just professionally, but personally, it's an issue in my household, too.
1: You mentioned ISPs, Internet Service Providers. Can you talk about the changes in the last administration, how these Internet Service Providers are classified? I think it's Title I versus Title II. And why that difference makes a, why it would make a difference in terms of how to get Internet Service Providers to comply with more regulations? Acting Chairwoman, can you describe that for us?
0: Yeah, the last administration uh, chose to roll back the FCC's net neutrality rules. I, I oppose that. I support net neutrality. Um, But in the process of rolling back that authority, the agency also diminished its oversight over broadband and internet service providers generally. And I think, you know, in this pandemic, it's not a great idea. We're all using these services to keep up with our day-to-day lives and finding out that the communications authority in this country has less authority than it used to to oversee internet service providers is not especially helpful. Uh, I'd like to see the FCC revisit those things, but at the moment I got an agency that is shy one member, and this is a hard issue to push forward on. But again, we're looking at data caps, we're looking at ways under existing rules we can start fixing these issues faster, Mm -hmm. and especially any kind of abuses that happen for consumers where they signed up for a plan that says they get a certain amount of service, and then they are told that that service is not available.
1: You mentioned your shy one member on the FCC. This is something that President Biden will appoint that uh, commissioner. And then then we would assume that with the Democratic majority, this could be a priority moving forward.
0: Uh, well, that is all above my pay grade. But yes, I think that's exactly <laughs> how it would go. I think uh, I think you've got the sequencing just right there.
1: So when we talk more about, uh, again, uh, helping consumers uh, with internet service providers and the cost of plans uh, moving forward, I mean, what do you think is your first priority as acting chairwoman uh, beyond uh, getting this, the data mapping, uh, the right data before the federal government?
0: I think getting this emergency broadband benefit program up and running. It would be the biggest program to assist households in this country with broadband affordability has ever existed. And we want to make sure that we get the word out about it. Consumers who may be struggling during this pandemic know about it and can sign up easily and swiftly. So the Emergency Broadband Benefit Program is uh, first among all of our priorities because I think it can do a lot of good connecting households that might be struggling right now are having a hard time trying to figure out how they're gonna pay their broadband bill and also put groceries on the table.
1: Mm. The former administration net neutrality was repealed. Uh, Moving forward, uh, the argument was that a lot would happen with that repeal and and it didn't uh, come to be. But are you worried that uh, there's been instances where we've seen ISPs, internet service providers, throttling service, and this is still an issue that that you want to tackle moving forward once you get that full FCC uh, membership?
0: Well, I'd like to make sure that the FCC has authority over broadband, uh, like with net neutrality. That was pushed back by the last administration, and I think what's important to keep in mind is that many households only have one provider available where they live. So, if that provider starts blocking websites or censoring content or throttling certain services online, that household doesn't have a choice. They can't pick up the take their business elsewhere. So I I do believe net neutrality policies are important. And I also think that the companies and the providers of broadband are um, definitely on their best behavior. They're keenly aware that legislation uh, passed the House last year to bring back net neutrality, that there are states like California that have enacted their own net neutrality laws. So I'd say that the providers are being very careful. and, um, And I think that that is something to do with the experience that we all have right now but I I also believe that having these policies on our books is a good thing and uh, either through the FCC or through Congress I hope it's something that we can put into the law again
1: I'm glad you brought up California because this might this uh, anecdote I'm going to share what actually what happened in California might get our listeners uh, pretty incensed. But in 2018, firefighters there were fighting California fires. They, they were put in the slow lane by Verizon uh, when they needed it the most. I mean, that's an example of, I mean, it's just amazing that that happened.
0: <laughs> right. No, well, you also think like, the choices that your providers make, maybe they'll throttle your cat videos or you know, when you're sitting back and streaming online one night. But this is just a hefty reminder that these are services that are used in public safety, used in lots of environments. Um, and we've gotta be really thoughtful about making sure everyone has access to what they need.
1: Before we end, I wanted to ask you about five G technology, and you know there have been communities that are a little worried about this. Uh, could you talk about five G technology and how what the build out will look like moving forward? Some of the challenges. Well, five G is just um,
0: the next generation of wireless technology. We are in early days here with its deployment. It is um, building off of four G, which is the current generation it is expected to bring speeds as much as a hundred times faster with uh, much, much lower latency. So it will make possible, not just technologies that we know of on our phones, but try to picture this wireless capability built into the world around us, into cars. It'll make lots of things that are viable because the speeds are so much greater and the latency is so reduced. I think that there's a lot of potential for, um, use in um in uh, the economy going forward and um we uh, are just starting to explore that use i recognize there's also some rf related concerns radio frequency related concerns and the fcc reviewed some of those issues uh the year before last uh that review is under consideration by the courts and it's something we'll be mindful of going forward
1: When we talk about 5G technology, you know, how to make it more equitable. So not only serving wealthy communities like we have here in our state, the Fairfield County area, but what about rural and low-income areas? Yeah,
0: well, this is the challenge with all new technologies. You know, private sector companies are logically going to want to deploy it in the densest locations where there is the greatest economic opportunity first. And then the hope is that we can build it out to everyone everywhere. But instead of just, you know, hoping about it, we can also make policy choices that expedite that deployment by compelling wireless licensees to build not just a population, but to geographic areas, by providing support through universal service funds, and by working with states and cities to make sure that they have reasonable rules in place to help assist with that deployment, because that infrastructure is gonna be really important for the next generation economy, in every town and every community across this country so i think we've got to look at all of those tools we have to improve policy to help its deployment and make sure it reaches everyone everywhere
1: and what role does the fcc have in maybe upping what counts as broadband i think what is it 25 yes, megabits right. per second that that doesn't work uh, yeah. for life no, in the pandemic
0: no <laughs> i think i've been um, complaining about this for so long so now i've got the opportunity to try to change it uh, our current broadband standard is 25 megabits down three megabits upload. <laughs> I think uh, it is high time to change that standard. I hope to be able to convince my colleagues to do so. You know, as a nation, when we set big goals, we get big things done. And uh, I think at a minimum, it should be 100 megabits uh, downstream uh, as table stakes for every household right now. And we got to work towards that goal. If it's out of reach, then we got to find ways to be able to, to reach it and make it happen. But we should have a bigger goal than a 25 megabit standard. I think um, that standard has been in place now for five years. It's time to update it and upgrade it.
1: Is that something that uh, you would need uh, congressional support for? Walk us through what that process would look like to sure. get uh, these companies sure. to do this.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, we'll always welcome congressional support on things to advance our standards. But I would have to convince the majority of my colleagues right now and um there are uh you know there are puts and takes with that but i hope that they can see the clarity here which is that we need higher standards the united states wants to be competitive if rural communities want to be competitive we're all going to have to figure out how to have more robust broadband in more places and when you put a higher standard into the law that standard then informs grant projects it informs subsidies it informs how we think about broadband going forward so uh it would require us uh, to raise our efforts across the board, and I think that a higher standard is a important thing to do, and it's the right place to start.
1: I want to thank Jessica Rosenworcel for joining us here on Where We Live. Again, she's acting chairwoman of the Federal Communications Commission, and she also hosts a podcast. Uh, can you tell us briefly, our, our listeners, <laughs> yeah. about the podcast?
0: Sure well you know I for a while I've been the only woman serving at the Federal Communications Commission and I'm keenly aware that the number of women in STEM fields is too few. So I decided that rather than you know playing the sad trombone about that, we were going to uh, just amplify the voices of some of the women I've been able to meet to learn about the technology that they work on. So I've been able to interview some huge dynamos. I've talked to senators about this, members of Congress, I've also spoken to, folks like the head of the Girl Scouts, who's an engineer by training. I've spoken to an astronaut and um, I just think it starts expanding our view of what uh, women are doing in technology. And that's a good thing because if people can see it, I think they can be it. And that was the whole purpose of starting the podcast. And I'm glad I've done so.
1: Well, thank you again for joining us, and we'll be watching to see uh, what happens with the FCC, including, again, your acting chairwoman of the FCC, um, if appointed as the permanent chair. You would be the first uh, chairwoman of the FCC, Jessica?
0: Yes, that would be the first permanent chairwoman in more than eight decades, yes.
1: (laughs) Well, thank you again for your time.
0: Thank you. I appreciate it.
1: This is Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nopithanchel. Coming up, we talk to a Wall Street Journal reporter who covers tech policy, and we'll take your questions to 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathantrill. We just heard from Jessica Rosenworcel, acting chairwoman of the Federal Communications Commission, for more about the FCC and some challenges ahead. Joining us now on Zoom, Ryan Tracy, tech policy reporter at the Wall Street Journal. Hi, Ryan. Good morning. Thank you for coming on today. So could you respond to Chairwoman Rosenworcel's interview, starting with broadband access? How difficult is it going to be for the FCC to accomplish this congressional goal uh, in a set time period? And ex- what does it mean to expand broadband, know- knowing the challenges of, of certain pockets in our, in our country?
2: Yeah, well, she's got, you know, a really tough task ahead of her on day one with this uh, broadband benefit program that she discussed. This is for people who can't afford service, and Congress adopted that program in December and told the agency to have it up and running basically by the end of this month. Uh, that's a pretty tight timeline, you know, the way Washington processes work uh, to stand up an entirely new program. And the stakes are pretty high because this is a, you know, something that r- the way that Congress has set it up initially, it's an emergency program. So it's designed to help people who need broadband because of COVID they're stuck at home, you know, they may not, uh, they may not have access and it's not necessarily going to be a permanent thing. I think, you know, it, we'll see how long it lasts, but, but most estimates are certainly less than a year. And so there are a lot of people, I think, including chairwoman Rosenworcel who might want to see the program last a lot longer than that, maybe become permanent one day. And, you know, if it doesn't work, if, if the FCC sets it up in a way where there it's people have trouble signing up or there aren't enough companies participating, that could be a real problem uh, in terms of getting Congress to extend it even further. And I, I think she even said at one point during the interview that that she's going to have to look at, uh, she, she may need to go back to Congress to ask for more money if demand is really high. And that could be tough if, if they make some mistakes in setting it up. Mm -hmm. So the clock is ticking. She's got a little less than two weeks, and uh, we'll see what it looks like once it rolls out.
1: A little less than two weeks. Ouch. (laughs) So when we think about um, how government has rolled out particular programs that we all remember, the disastrous launch of healthcare.gov. So this is not something that the FCC wants to see.
2: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. That's kind of a what not to do tale, And, you know, the other thing that can happen, in addition to sort of leaving a a sour taste in Congress's mouth if the program doesn't go well, you know, a lot of the – it can be hard to get someone who's – you know, someone – imagine the type of person that might need this program, right? They may have lost their job. um, They've got all sorts of worries in in their life uh, on a daily basis. And so you kind of go to them and say, hey, look, there's this great program. You can sign up and get internet. Well, you know, what if they finally find a way to remember, they don't have Internet right now, so they can't just go fill out an online form. They might have to take a bus to go to the library to sign up or whatever it is. If they have trouble with that, if the website doesn't work well, you know, they may not try again, even if they need the the help. Uh, they may say, oh, you know, I remember that 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 was baloney that didn't work. So, you know, the, the stakes are, are high from that perspective, too.
1: I asked her about the FCC auction under the former administration uh, for, to companies to help expand broadband service. She didn't want to talk specifically about SpaceX, but I know this is something that you've covered, just the different types of technologies that, um, that these companies hope to use to help expand uh, broadband Internet. Can you give us an overview?
2: Sure, yeah. So this is kind of the other, you, you, you did a great job of outlining, you know, one problem is affordability. The other problem is access and there are large parts of america that don't even have a provider offering broadband right now so uh under the trump administration the fcc did an auction uh the announced the results of which were announced at the end of last year that is going to be about nine or ten billion dollars over the next uh ten years that will subsidize providers to build out these networks in rural areas. And it's interesting now, Democrats are gonna be in charge of deciding whether to sort of press the button and release that money. And there are some questions, there's a lot of lobbying going on in Washington about this right now, because some of the winners of the auction uh, are providers that have less of a track record than some of the kind of household name type companies like, uh, you know, Charter, for example, which runs the Spectrum uh, broadband product. Uh, SpaceX has never really had a widely available commercial service before, and yet it's in line to receive about $800 million over 10 years. So the the question before the FCC now is whether it's okay with that, or or is it confident that SpaceX can do what it's promising to do? And there are some other companies uh, even smaller than SpaceX that are on the hook for some pretty large commitments. And so she's going to, she's going to be kind of overseeing the staff that evaluate those applications. And the stakes there are, you know, if, if the FCC gives money to companies and they don't follow through, well, then it could be an even longer wait until it can set up another auction and send even more money to using somebody else to actually follow through. So, you know, you're talking about years of delay for some of these rural areas. If, if that, um, those commitments don't work. On the other hand, you know, these are areas that are really hard to reach. Mm -hmm. And if it does work, if SpaceX uh, does follow through, that's gonna be great for those areas. So we'll see how it goes.
1: So SpaceX, uh, again, would be satellite-based broadband service. Is this mm-hmm. promising when we think about the challenges in rural areas, this last mile cost and, and, and pull challenges where uh, internet service providers haven't wanted to spend the money to put in the infrastructure? Could this be a promising technology for those areas?
2: Yeah, I think it, you'd, it'd be hard to to debate, um, you know, your, your description of it as promising, right? <laughs> um, the, the, the SpaceX technology is really interesting it uses satellites that are much closer to the ground than satellites would typically be. And there's a lot more of them. There's a whole constellation of them. And, and, you know, we're talking thousands of satellites uh, much smaller and closer to the ground. And the idea basically is that SpaceX can offer this technology all over the world to all sorts of areas that don't currently have, you know, a fiber optic cable going by their, their house right now. Um, And, you know, Because it's a new technology though, you have all these questions. Well, how fast will it be? We know how fast the fiber line is. And we're not sure yet, you know, once you get, if you would get a lot of people signing up, will that sort of slow down the the speed on these satellites? What happens when it rains? You know, all these things that once you, once you deploy the technology at scale, that's really how you kind of learn how it works. So, so, you know, SpaceX obviously has done testing and they feel very confident that this is going to work, uh, but you know, it's never really been done before. So uh, we'll have to see.
1: I like focusing on this when we think about the billions of dollars in federal subsidies these companies are getting, because as you pointed out one of your stories, these subsidies come from the so-called universal service fees that consumers see on their phone bills, Ryan.
2: Right, right, yeah. So this is a program that's been around uh, a long time. And the idea was, you know, if the phone company uh, gets a monopoly in a given area, well, um, you know they ought to have the obligation of providing universal service in that area. And now we're kind of trying to adapt that program to the age of the internet, when you've got a lot more providers, uh, internet service providers involved, um, and and you're trying to kind of, you know, the Congress hasn't really updated the laws uh, to reflect the fact that we're in this new kind of broadband age. The universal service program is an old program. And what Chairwoman Rosenworcel and others at the FCC have done is try to adapt those fees and use them as funding for broadband programs. And, you know, there's all sorts of uh, problems with that. One thing that's happening with those fees is they keep going up every year because fewer people are paying phone bills. And and a lot of those bills are, uh, you know, and that fee is on your phone bill. So, There's less money available to try to build out broadband, and that's why Congress is appropriating additional funds, as we heard with this emergency program during the pandemic.
1: Uh, again, it remains to be seen if acting chairwoman Jessica rosen becomes the permanent chair. But can you talk a little bit about uh, the tenure of former FCC chairman, Egypt Pai, and, and what uh, remains in front of her and the FCC in terms of his legacy and some of the the, the things he did, including the repeal of net neutrality?
2: Yeah, so, you know, certainly she's uh, she's got to deal with these, um, these broadband programs that we've talked about. Uh, net neutrality is an issue where there's a really big partisan divide. Democrats uh, think the FCC should be putting rules in place, regulating uh, internet service providers and telling them, you know, not to sort of put one, not to throttle certain web traffic and allow other web traffic through and, and really being very much more specific than Republicans would prefer in terms of regulations. And the Obama administration adopted net neutrality rules. The Trump administration rolled those back. Now we've got Democrats in charge, and they may eventually try to put them in place again. So we're kind of seesawing here. Uh, and, you know, she's, she's obviously got uh, – you could tell, I think, from the interview, she would love to be able to move forward tomorrow with reinstituting net neutrality rules, uh, but she doesn't have the votes to do that right now. And so that's that's not going to be at the top of the agenda.
1: You're hearing Ryan Tracy, tech policy reporter at the Wall Street Journal on where we live. Coming up after a short break, we're going to talk about should government regulate the Internet? And what does that mean for tech companies like Google and Amazon? We'll be back after a short break. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy nall broadcasting remotely. My guest right now on Zoom, Ryan Tracy, tech policy reporter at the Wall Street Journal. At the top of the show, we heard from acting chairwoman of the FCC, Jessica Rosenworcel. Uh, we brought up internet service providers and the speed that is considered broadband, Ryan. As she mentioned, she'd love to see that up, to, I think, to 100 megabits per second. Um, is How possible would that be?
2: Yeah, so you know, th- this is something that the FCC looks at when it uh, gives out money for broadband, and it's the definition is important when uh, you know you're talking about what level of service is the government going to subsidize. I think it is somewhat symbolic, though. So, for example, under the Trump administration, although the definition was 25 megabits per second, the money that they are planning to give out to provide service in all these rural areas that we've been talking about. Uh, a lot of that money is going to f- is supposed to fund networks much much faster than that, like a thousand megabits per second or gigabit speed. And so, you know, the FCC is moving in the the direction of kind of wanting to support faster service. And uh, and you know, it sounds like the acting chairwoman wo- woman would like to, you know, uh, also change the definition of of what's considered broadband so that all these other programs, um, federal programs and federal policy in this area reflects that.
1: So we know that the FCC has a big hand in making rules around internet connection and service providers like Comcast and others. But what about regulating uh, the internet in the sense of the enormous power tech companies have like Google and Facebook and Amazon? Does the FCC have any say over this? And if not this agency, uh, is there a move in Congress of having some more regulation of these tech companies? Yeah,
2: so this is one of the the really kind of odd things about all the, the debate that the whole country is having right now about social media uh, and, you know, there's been these antitrust cases also against Google and Facebook fi- filed um, in, at the end of last year. And, you know, there really is no agency that regulates the Internet, right? There's a, the, and in particular, regulates these huge, huge companies, uh, really the biggest companies in the country right now. Uh, you know, big tech, so to speak. The Federal Communications Commission is an old agency, you know, created in the 1930s, and it doesn't have authority over Facebook or Google, really, unless they were to do something that the FCC regulates, like, for example, uh, provide uh, fiber broadband service or something like that. Um, And so there's there's a kind of interesting policy debate going on right now in DC about what to do about that. Should Congress create a new agency? That's something that um, some Democrats, for example, have proposed, uh, or is that really the best thing? Maybe the internet's doing fine and we we shouldn't have more regulation of it. Uh, And right now that debate is really kind of all over the place. Honestly, it's not as if Congress looks like it's getting ready to create a new internet regulator tomorrow. There's a lot of proposals floating out there right now and a lot of debate, the one place where there is agreement is both Democrats and Republicans really don't feel great about where we are. You know, they're both angry for different reasons at Facebook and Google, and they're they're not content with the current situation. And so they've got to try to figure out a way to move forward with some policies to address that. And that's going to be tough, especially when Congress has so much else to do right now, when you're thinking about, you know, the, the coronavirus and economic recovery bill and, and all these other priorities that the president and leaders in, in Congress have set out. So, uh, you know, it's a, it's a messy debate right now.
1: Mm -hmm. Uh, You mentioned whether there should be more or less regulations uh, during the the Trump administration. Uh, There was some movement on a law called Section 230. So this would be uh, whether companies have uh, protection from being held liable. Can you talk a little bit about how the Trump administration waded into this and what that means for the, the current FCC?
2: Yeah, so Section 230 is uh, part of a law called the Communications Decency Act. It was created in 1996 at the beginning of the Internet age, really. And it says that if, you know, for example, Twitter uh, allows me to post a tweet that that someone else says is defamatory, uh, that person can't sue Twitter, they have to sue me, right? Twitter is not responsible for what I post there. and you know, there are some other aspects to Section 230 as well, but that's kind of the basic thing. And that allows a lot of internet websites that host user generated content to exist. So think of YouTube videos or reviews on TripAdvisor or, you know, postings on Airbnb or Amazon. The fact that those, the companies that are running those websites, don't have liability uh, for the content really allows them to run those websites. Otherwise, they'd be you know, looking at lawsuits left and right all the time. So there's some logic to Section 230, and that's why it was created. But Section 230 has also become a target because there's this feeling, again, among policymakers that these companies just have too much leeway, that, you know, Twitter can decide to block someone completely, like it did with President Trump, if if they want to. Or, you know, companies can decide not to block something, like when Facebook uh, decided to uh, leave up a video uh, about House Speaker Nancy Pelosi that made a lot of that decision made a lot of Democrats really angry. So, you know, there's a lot of debate. Well, what, what should we do about this? We, we should look at Section 230. And in fact, President Biden has proposed revoking Section 230 altogether. He actually did that before President Trump proposed doing it. Uh, so this is something Biden and Trump both said they wanted to do. And it's, it's unlikely, I think, that Congress is going to revoke the law altogether because there's just not a lot of support for that. Uh, so the question is, what do you do? And that's something we're going to see a lot of hearings on this year in D.C. is how do you change this law if you're going to change it um, to maybe bring some more accountability to these large social media platforms without hurting all these other websites or, or making them you know, face a whole lot of lawsuits?
1: Well, I appreciate the context you provided for us. Ryan Tracy, tech policy reporter at The Wall Street Journal. We'll tweet out some links to his stories. Uh, It's been an interesting hour, and we'll be looking forward to seeing what happens with the FCC, including if uh, Jessica rosen is made permanent chair. Ryan Tracy, thank you for your time. We appreciate it. Thanks. It was a lot of fun. I appreciate it. Today's show was produced by Carmen Baskoff. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. As always, thanks for listening.